0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Which Denver neighborhoods are about to take off? The city actually studies this, and high up on the list is Westwood in southwest Denver. My colleague Ryan Warner went there to talk about gentrification and why the city is engineering change in neighborhoods.
1: Westwood is along Alameda Avenue, west of I-25. The area has relatively high poverty and crime rates and is, in city parlance, on the verge of dynamic change. Residents, like a woman who was on her front lawn, feel that.
2: It's changing a lot. We have new apartments here, here, the ones over there by the other restaurant.
1: She says she's lived in Westwood for 17 years. A few blocks away, Jose Torres says his rent has gone up about a third in just a few years. That's a familiar story in Denver. But some, like Arturo Correa, say the changes are good. His family owns the Palateria Zacatecas Popsicle Shop on Morrison Road. He says his property value has doubled recently, and he likes newcomers.
3: Maybe they'll take care of it better. Looks like they're more upscale places, opposed to what's been here for several years.
1: But these changes won't happen willy-nilly if Denver can help it. As we said, the city is engineering what happens next in hopes of preserving diversity and a mix of new and old businesses. Take, for example, the Costco the city helped develop near existing car dealerships and restaurants. I've come to a construction site where the city is helping build nearly 100 affordable apartments to meet Paul Washington. He leads the city's Office of Economic Development. Thanks so much for meeting us here. And I want to ask what it is about this neighborhood that makes it a good spot for new affordable housing? Is it just that you can afford the land?
3: That certainly is part of it. One of the reasons we focus on Westwood, frankly, is it's been studied. And we've had a lot of guidance as to what the neighborhood wants in terms of redevelopment and what their issues are, and that helps uh, prioritize our investment decisions. If
1: the city didn't have some hand in this property, what would happen? (coughs) Is it that it would become Denver's next, you know, ritziest
3: neighborhood with no room for affordable housing. What are the concerns? Well, I think our concern is that if the city of Denver did not intervene, we don't know what this neighborhood would become. And the reason we make these investments is we have some influence on delivering development that addresses the neighborhood needs. Uh, We've made a number of investments in open space, investments in early childhood education, investments in retail with the new Costco down the street, and uh, other affordable housing uh, projects. And, And those are all an intent to deliver against what the neighborhood is saying it needs.
1: I understand Westwood has some of the fewest parks per capita in the city.
3: Uh, That's right.
1: And so this is really a, a holistic approach. It's not just about housing. But on the housing subject, you'll make the apartments in this building available to people earning about a third less than the median income of the area already. In total, you're hoping to develop about 600 units a year across the city. And I do wonder, are there some neighborhoods you've just given up on for affordable housing, like Rhino or the Highlands or Wash Park, where it's just too costly to buy the land.
3: No, we certainly are not giving up on any neighborhoods for affordable housing, although our strategies certainly change. In neighborhoods that are more expensive, we may think about for-sale affordable housing, but we are going to make sure we have affordable housing throughout Denver and every neighborhood.
1: Denver's changed a lot in the past 20 years. You know this. You were born and raised here. But I wonder why affordability is an issue. Kind of questioning the whole thing here. Higher property values mean higher tax revenues for the city. Why
3: not let the market dictate rents, dictate housing prices purely? We think about and care about affordable housing because in times when the economy is good, we are pricing individuals out of Denver, and that results in more congestion, That results in not having the critical persons who deliver services, not being able to afford to live in their neighborhoods like cops and teachers
1: who then have to commute because they have to live outside of the city, and and thus the connection to congestion.
3: That's right, and also who are a little bit out of touch with some of the unique characteristics and challenges of a neighborhood. You think about a teacher that may live in a different community than he or she teaches. And then also it's important for Denver to remain diverse, not just racially, but social and economically.
1: I talked with Mayor Michael Hancock about this back in 2014, And he said the affordable housing crisis indeed threatens Denver's identity. I think that's what you're getting at there. Some city leaders have worked for years to create a dedicated funding stream for affordable housing. But there are as many households moving to Denver every six months, as this new program is supposed to create in a decade. Of course, some of the new residents will be upper-middle class, but how can you possibly keep up with Denver's growth? Isn't this just a drop in the bucket?
3: No one will argue that the $150 million over the next 10 years in this affordable housing fund is enough to keep up with the demand. Some thousand people a month move to Denver alone, and so you can't build your way out of this, but you certainly can't sit there and do nothing. And so I think this affordable housing fund is a very bold attempt to start the process of building and preserving affordable housing, and we will do more.
1: As we listen to the sounds of construction here, we're sort of standing where the foundation of this building will be here along West Alameda in Denver. I wonder what was here
3: before. I believe what was here before was a parking lot and a liquor store of all things. So we're very excited to replace uh, those two uh, uh, functions with what will be an affordable housing development. There were some houses on the property, is that right? Um, Yes, that's my understanding.
1: And those were bought out by a private developer that's in partnership with the city. So the study that um, we quoted at the top of our segment focused on gentrification, the idea that communities, often residents of color, get priced out of their neighborhoods while well-educated, often white families move in. This is happening in many areas of Denver, and neighborhoods that have not already gentrified may still. But the city is also saying here, look, despite the normal negative connotation of gentrification, it's not always a bad thing. What are examples of how it can work in a poorer family's favor?
3: Well, first of all, gentrification is not a bad thing. What's bad is when gentrification results in the involuntary displacement of a low-income family. So... How residents benefit from a gentrifying neighborhood if they happen to be low income is that almost by definition when a neighborhood gentrifies, there is more access to those critical resources, certainly affordable housing, but also education, health care, job training, and meaningful employment. And sometimes that's done through transit, sometimes that's done just by having your kids go to school with other more educated, higher income families. And that connectivity can happen organically.
1: But the key, of course, is to have lower-income families stay. And that is the fundamental challenge that Denver and so many other communities are facing. And this may be a question of whether someone owns their own home and is feeling the benefits of the increasing property rates or whether they rent. That's a big distinction here, isn't it?
3: It certainly is a big distinction. Frankly, when a neighborhood gentrifies and becomes more expensive, renters really get the brunt of that but for home ownership it's a little bit different as the value of the home increases that's good for the homeowner but the taxes on that property are also increasing and that can create involuntary displacement in in some instances because families cannot even afford the taxes uh, of their home. I'm feeling some raindrops and construction's picking up why don't we head inside to the trailer and continue. That sounds great.
1: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we've come to a West Denver neighborhood, a construction site where affordable housing is being built. To check in on the affordable housing crunch in the city, my guest is the executive director of Denver's Office of Economic Development, Paul Washington. So, Paul, obviously the cost of land is an element here. Does that put the city in the tough position of actually having to make real estate deals with taxpayer money? And to, you know, gamble a little bit with the market.
3: No, we're not gambling with taxpayer money, but we are uh, land banking and purchasing property adjacent to uh, existing transit stations. I think that's a very safe bet that that property will only increase in value and we will develop that, which will include affordable housing.
1: So there are essentially parcels around the city that the city owns and is sort of waiting to develop. Can you say how many lots? What kind of acreage?
3: Well, um, we are actively involved in about uh, three different lots, and the acres range from um, you know, half a block to about four or five acres.
1: Where else in the city?
3: The Sunnyside neighborhood, um, as well as in Globeville, Lyria, Swansea, and 29th and Walton. Denver has done some of this kind of development in Lowry and Stapleton,
1: both have become high cost neighborhoods in a relatively short amount of time. And Stapleton in particular is having trouble meeting its goals to create affordable housing, specifically
3: when it comes to sale properties. What has happened? Why is that so tricky? 2008, of course, was a real estate-led recession, and so part of the struggle we had is that the market was just working against us. However, there is an enormous opportunity, and that goal can be made up, I think, um, very successfully if we thoughtfully develop the property around the Central Park Boulevard transit station over the next year or so.
1: That's along the train to
3: the plane. That's correct.
1: The idea here is to avoid concentrating poverty where the city's lowest income residents all live in the same neighborhood and then end up with bad schools, bad amenities, or none at all. Every major city, though, that is attractive is struggling with this balance. What makes you think you can stop what must feel to some like a market inevitability that things in desirable places are simply going to get more expensive and thus unaffordable?
3: No city has figured out the problem of uh, involuntary displacement as a result of gentrification. And we're in good company, but it's a long-term prospect. We don't know if we will ever solve the issue, but we're going to work hard. And I think we have to be intentional and progressive about the policies and the investment decisions that we make.
1: The city has received some criticism for its push for new developments in the Elyria-Swansea-Globeville neighborhoods. There are several projects going on in that part of North Denver, between the renewal of the Stock Show Complex, I-70 and Brighton Boulevard, among others. The city is demolishing a few dozen homes in these historically working-class neighborhoods. Other residents are being targeted to get bought out. They have yard signs that say, my community is not for sale. The implication is, once the neighborhood is nicer, rich people will want to live there, and historic communities there will be pushed out. Is what's happening in Elyria, Swansea, and Globeville contradictory to the city's other affordable housing efforts?
3: No, I think the Office of Economic Development has purchased six acres of property um, right at the Stock Shill Station as a way to address some of the displacement that will occur because the I-70 is expanding. We will also look to acquire additional properties so that we can deliver for sale affordable housing in that neighborhood.
1: And would there be some assurance that whoever occupied those apartments or homes came from that neighborhood?
3: That's a great question. And other cities um, have those types of policies where there's some preference if you're from a neighborhood or your family's from a neighborhood. That requires an ordinance change and, uh, and it requires new laws. And that's something we certainly will look into.
1: I mean, it strikes me that you can't really address displacement if you don't have that law on the books.
3: Well, I want to look into that ordinance change. I think I want to understand uh, both the pros and cons of having uh, a preference. One of the legal issues um, will be uh, making sure that you are not discriminating unwillingly for housing opportunities by having those preferences.
1: Of course, making housing less expensive isn't the only way to make things affordable. You can also raise the income of the people who live in a particular neighborhood. And so the city is trying to create better job prospects in gentrifying neighborhoods. Give me an example of where that's happening and what that looks like, the kinds of opportunities you're creating.
3: Sure. You mentioned Global Lyric Swansea. So we have a very, very intentional workforce development effort that will go on in that neighborhood. Um, It will first start with understanding the jobs that are expected to come because of the expansion of the freeway. And then, of course, we have a goal of making Denver and the National Western Center the agribusiness hub of this country. And so we want to train the residents of Goldville or Swansea to take advantage of these job opportunities.
1: I think some people new to Denver would have a hard time imagining the Denver that you grew up in in the 1970s. You live in Boulder now with your wife, another city where affordable housing is a huge problem. I just saw last week that there were 57 homes in Boulder that sold for more than a million dollars in June. Housing really is a regional issue. Have you seen any innovative solutions from, say, the suburbs? Or is there something you'd implore the suburbs to do specifically?
3: Well, I think what I would implore the suburbs to think about is their own transit-oriented development strategies. If you're going to have relatively well-educated, high-income individuals moving into a neighborhood and you want to keep the low- and moderate-income families in those neighborhoods – The only way to really solve that and do both is to think about density. And I think density is very appropriate at transit. And so as we think about how this is a regional approach to affordable housing, there needs to be a regional discussion about how we develop at transit.
1: Density, meaning lots of people living in one concentrated place. And that has a certain efficiency to it, as you've described. But it can also greatly change the character of a neighborhood, something that might have felt like,
3: Uh, you know, leave it to Beaver, all of a sudden starts feeling like sex in the city. I think that's one way to describe it. But um, you don't have to necessarily change the entire neighborhood. When I talk about density, I'm really talking about density at transit in particular.
1: I think fundamentally what we're talking about is change and how uncomfortable change can be. We heard from folks in this neighborhood that Yes, this affordable housing development is going up, but it may block their view of the mountains. And it means your neighbors
3: change and new people come in and new businesses come in and old ones go out. It's important to make sure that business owners know that uh, gentrification uh, is coming. It's important for these business owners to think about how they will appeal to what will be a new demographic. But more importantly, it's important for business owners to understand what and how they can maintain the cultural integrity of the services they are delivering you think about a restaurant or or a neighborhood store. And so that's a delicate balance, and so we'll be providing both technical and financial resources to businesses in these neighborhoods so they can help adjust this change. But that same business also reflects the cultural integrity of that neighborhood. And, And in particular, as millennials move into the urban core, part of the reason they want to move into the urban core is because they want to embrace and take advantage of the diversity it offers. And so that business owner's got to play that balance. How do they serve a new demographic, but also how do they make sure that they are satisfying the existing uh, clientele, the existing neighborhood?
0: Paul Washington leads Denver's Office of Economic Development. He met CPR's Ryan Warner in the Westwood neighborhood. By the way, a plan approved Monday night means the city is also committed to building new bike paths and making it safer for pedestrians. We'll check back in on Westwood as it changes. See where affordable housing is available in Denver right now. There's a map at cprnews.org. Coming up on the anniversary of the Aurora Theater shootings, how first responders are trained to deal with trauma. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. Not long after police and other first responders swarmed the Century 16 movie theater on the night of July twentieth, 2012, John Nicoletti arrived. A psychologist with over 30 years' experience specializing in trauma recovery, it was his job to counsel police officers and first responders on scene. Nicoletti is co-founder of Nicoletti & Flater. The firm has worked with first responders, victims, and their families in the aftermath of national incidents like Virginia Tech and local tragedies like Columbine and Aurora. We spoke to him via phone as he was heading to a a consulting appointment. He pulled over to chat with us. Welcome to the program. Thank you, sir. You say one of the main ways to recover from a tragedy like the Aurora Theater shootings is to, quote, move it from a thought to a memory. What does that mean?
4: Okay, after a traumatic event, the event kind of consumes a person. That's all they can think about. They have either what we call intrusions, where they keep thinking about it or keep seeing it or hearing it, or in some cases, the smells of the event. And then they have things that are like flashbacks, where they're flying and all of a sudden a sound will set them off. What we want to do is move it to the memory center. You can never get rid of a trauma. Unfortunately, whatever you see, you can never unsee. and You know, whatever you hear, you can never unhear. The best we can do on trauma is get it where it's a memory. And that being said, there'll be times that the memories will wake up again. There'll be something to bring up the memories to your consciousness. Not somebody who has PTSD, but it is an individual who went through a traumatic event and didn't move it to their memory center. And now they've got to go, live with all the symptoms.
0: So is July 20th, 2012 a, a thought or a memory for you now?
4: Well, it's both, actually. You know, it's a memory because it's been long enough. But then, you know, when you do an interview or something, you talk about it, it brings it to the forefront again.
0: What did you experience that night since you arrived shortly after police and first responders? You were on scene alongside them.
4: Yeah, I mean, two reactions. One was just, again, overwhelming. You know, you get there and you see police and fire and everybody trying to help there and just the scene is so many people. And the other interesting reaction I had was, here we go again, because I was on scene at Columbine. Hmm. And just kind of brings up all that stuff again.
0: And what is your approach in working with first responders on scene?
4: We don't get in the way. I mean, they got a job to do. Our role on scene is basically to work with them when they're being, you know, redeployed to go home or somewhere else, just kind of checking in with them and giving them a heads up on what they may expect. You don't interfere. You let them do their job Then when they're ready to transition is where we kind of talk to them and offer options and stuff. The police officers are fairly resilient. They've been through a lot, so they're bouncing back pretty well. But you have folks who are like were in the movie theater that night, and they've never really experienced trauma. There are some of those that weren't able to go back to a movie theater and to this day probably haven't been that. Too many memories.
0: When you talk to people who have been in these situations, you... You bring up the thought of denial, uh, that they have to deny that this stuff is happening. Uh, For example, people who once thought movie theaters were a safe place to go, now they may perceive them as not so safe. They have to have this denial uh, kind of built inside of them. Why focus on that uh, aspect of recovery, this, this idea of denial?
4: You know, there are school shootings. If we don't have a certain amount of denial that it won't happen again at our school or our schools are safe. And you send your kids off to school and there's a part of you worried that they won't come home. Life would just be miserable. for them. They wouldn't do it. Or they'd just be total stress cases. So whenever we have an assumption shattered about the world, we have to figure out a way to rebuild it. But we can't rebuild it in the same way.
0: But isn't generally being in denial a bad thing? I mean, is it, is it really healthy to be in denial about everything? Shouldn't one face something, you know, head-on?
4: Well, it's a continuum. Too much denial, you're exactly right. It's not healthy because you're oblivious and, you know, bad things can happen. But we have to have a certain amount to say, you know, the school I'm sending my kids back to is going to be safe. Or the movie theater I'm going to go to this weekend is going to be safe. If you lived in a world where you couldn't have an assumption of safety, you know, you'd be creating your own brand of misery.
0: You mentioned earlier that law enforcement officials, you feel, have to have a certain amount of resilience in order to bounce back from some of the things that they see. But in the aftermath of shootings in Dallas and Baton Rouge, is there a danger of that resilience eroding for first responders?
4: Well, yeah, I think well, two levels, first responders, you know, they get concerned about it. It changes your perception of responding to calls. But the other part that happens, and we're seeing this around the country, where it really creates apprehension is in significant other than kids, because they hear about that too. You know, the officer's in control. He or she's on the street, and they have a certain sense of being in control, but the family members back home and, you know, you start hearing about these things and you wonder, can this happen here in the Denver area? It's kind of a new normal.
0: Can you explain that a bit more?
4: New normal is, you know, we can't take for granted that, you know, clubs are going to be, you know, you think about Orlando. Things can happen in places where we never thought would. That's why, you know, new normal, I don't know if you have kids or not, new normal for kids here, like in Colorado, is to have lockdown drills. That never occurred, you know, prior to Columbine. And the kids grow up with that. They don't have a fear. It's just you go to school and kids know what a lockdown drill is. They know what lock slides and out of sight means, things that they never knew before.
0: So that may be scary, let's say, as older adults, but for children, it is just the way life is. But isn't there a a fear that, that it's just preaching doom and gloom? that this is, this is quite a dire uh, frame of thought.
4: Now, you know, maybe I'm being a little naive in this, but, you know, when we talk to kids and stuff, they don't go around thinking doom and gloom. They just think, you know, it's like fire drills. I mean, when we had to have fire drills in school, we didn't think doom and gloom. We just said, okay, that's what you got to do. If you, incorpor- if you empower people and incorporate a new normal, you don't get the fear. But if you tell somebody there's a boogeyman out there, and be careful, but they don't tell you how to mitigate or defeat the boogeyman, then you get, like you say, the doom and gloom.
0: Do you take different approaches for people of different ages? It sounds like you do.
4: Oh, yeah. yeah. Kids are very, you know, they're concrete. Like, you know, I was working on one, with one of the kind of a crisis line after 9-11, and you'd have families calling in. And I remember one mother calling in saying, you know, my child gets upset every time she watches the plane hit the World Trade Center. And you've got to be real concrete with parents and say, well, don't let them watch it. Because the kids, if you, they're watching it, it's like it's happening again. So you've got to have a sense of the developmental stage where somebody's at.
0: Four years later after the Aurora Theater shooting, is the work that you're doing with first responders ongoing still?
4: No, pretty much. You know, the way trauma goes is, you know, closer to the event, the more the emotions are heightened. And you have a series of early, what we call anniversary reactions, like the 24 hour after an event, one month after, one week after the event, one month, and then one year. But then beyond one year, pretty much people have been able to resolve it and mitigate any major issues.
0: So what is your resilience like having to deal with these incidents alongside uh, first responders? And how do you and your staff cope? Is it similar to, to how you teach uh, first responders and police officers?
4: Yeah, totally. I mean, you, know, you really want to practice what you kind of present there. So we, as and I'm fortunate, to have a lot of good staff, and they're all pretty much trained in trauma. So after major events, we basically debrief and process it. If you keep stuff inside, it just sort of haunts you. You know, you think you go, you think you push it away, but it still lives there.
0: Could there? Let, let's let's bring it out a little bit. Could there be, you know, maybe a national? resiliency that we need to look at or, or a national uh, uh, thought of denial in a sense of these things are happening now. They didn't used to happen. How do I cope with this? Uh, you know, not just, let's say, first responders, but but anyone, someone listening right now.
4: I think, yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And that's the thought process you want to get. You want to get the thought process of what do I do if, as opposed to, oh my God, because if you just stay at, oh my God, that's a helpless thing. Whereas if you get it, the what-if thinking, and then you empower yourself. You know, you, a lot of people go to movie theaters now, and I, I bet you if you talk to your audience, you could ask them a question that they probably didn't know the answer to years ago, and that is, do you know where the exit is at a movie theater? And what you'll find is more people are vigilant about that. Because it, it, it happened there. Whereas if you ask your audience if they know where the exit door at a grocery store is, very few people would be able to answer that question.
0: John, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thanks. Hopefully it was helpful to you.
0: John Nicoletti is co-founder of Nicoletti & Flater. The firm has worked with first responders, victims, and families following traumatic events. We continue to follow the Colorado delegation at this week's Republican National Convention in Cleveland. Yesterday, we heard from Colorado Republican Senate candidate Daryl Glenn from his primetime speech on Monday. There was another speaker Monday afternoon at the convention, Jefferson County Commissioner and former state representative Libby Zabo. She talked about her, quote, American dream and her hopes for the next U.S. president.
5: We need new leadership, bold leadership, willing to tackle everything. From national security to our energy independence, leadership that understands we, the people, are the answers to our problems, not the government.
0: That's an excerpt from Libby Zabo's speech at the Republican National Convention Monday afternoon. She's a commissioner with Jefferson County. We'll bring you more Colorado voices from the Democratic National Convention, which begins next week. And we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. There's a new sculpture that's caught our attention in East Denver. It's at one of the new commuter rail stops on the way to Denver International Airport. We know it's a piece of public art commissioned by RTD, but it's odd. And it got us wondering what people think about it. So we went to find out how people describe it.
2: You know when you fill up, when you're a kid, like gloves with sand? That's what it looks like to me, but a person.
1: Maybe it's like the marshmallow man without a head.
3: To me, man, it says balloon man running. But I, I guess if you want to talk about the balloon man running, we all balloon men, you know? We feel with air. We all trying to get somewhere and get there as fast as we can. But sometimes we're going to have hurdles and different things and obstacles that will get in our way. That's the
0: voice of Idis Marshall. We also heard from Kevin O'Brien and Julia Rodriguez, both of Denver, all with their interpretations of this public art sculpture. As Marshall said, it's called Balloon Man Running. Colorado Springs artist Sean O'Mealy created it. You can see photos at CPRnews.org. We also asked people at this rail stop about public art in general. And it was a simple question. What word comes to mind when you think of public art?
2: Controversial. Hi, my name is Kathleen LeVette. I'm a retired psychologist, and presently uh, I live in Commerce City. I'm from Los Angeles. In some cases, uh, it detracts from the space and uh, calls attention to itself and not for a positive reason.
4: Uh, interesting. Hi, my name's Tom Gallegos. I'm a sheet metal worker, and I'm from Denver. If some picks my interest like I see it, I'll just I'll remember it forever. Seeing this kind of makes my day better. That's what I like about it corporate. My
2: name is Julia. I'm a student and I live in Stapleton. Well, most public art installations are in front of large offices. They're in big centers of commerce. They don't feel organic to me, or at least in this city. I live in Montreal the rest of the year when I'm at school and their art is everywhere. But in Denver, like public art is something that's commissioned rather than created.
0: You just heard from Julia Rodriguez. Tom Gallegos and Kathleen LeVette also shared words that he used to describe public art, corporate, interesting, and controversial. These discussions are part of an ongoing project from CPR News that explores Colorado's public art and how it's funded. CPR arts reporter Corey Jones is here to talk about his recent reporting. Hi, Corey. Hey, Nathan. So why is CPR News focusing on this topic right now?
5: Well, it's important to note that there's a lot at stake for arts funding in the Denver area this year. Uh, that's because voters across seven counties will decide whether to extend a cultural tax. This is known as the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, uh, SCFD for short. And last year it generated more than $50 million for about 270 organizations. And we're talking big ones like the Denver Art Museum to small theater companies. and the Funds help support these groups, and they also allow for, say, free days at places like the Denver Zoo.
0: And the SCFD cultural tax will be on the November ballot?
5: Yeah, exactly. Uh, SCFD started in the late 80s and every 10 to 12 years, voters decide whether to extend it. And they voted twice. uh, Yes, they voted yes twice before by big margins. Uh, So the issue will come up again this fall. And now there are other areas of the state that also want something similar to help fund their arts. For example, arts leaders in Larimer County hope to get their own cultural tax on the ballot this year. And so all this got us curious about how public money is used for the arts here in Colorado. So what have you learned so far? Well, public art gets funded in a lot of different ways. Uh, One way is through your tax dollars, and Mm -hmm. public money goes to other cultural things, too. Uh, Think about Colorado's Film Incentives Program. This is what tries to draw movie shoots to the state. Uh, Think about Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. That got $5 million from Colorado to shoot in Telluride. And then there are public art programs that bring sculptures to parks or sidewalks. I'm sure you've seen them. Uh, Of course, some of those get public money, too. So there's a big range in how these arts programs get funded, and many of them have their own structures. And so that's why we want to get some clarity on this.
0: Uh, Let's hear an example.
5: Yeah, sure. So we recently looked at six new installations at Denver International Airport. The cost of the art was around $6 million. And this is part of the new hotel and transit center development out there. Uh, And while the art falls under the city of Denver's public art ordinance, we found out that DIA actually pays for the pieces from their own revenue streams. Now, one of those pieces, uh, almost the the centerpiece, is called Shadow Array by Denver artist Patrick Merrill. This thing is huge. Uh, It has 236 logs from trees killed by beetles in Colorado. And we found out that it's DIA's most expensive commission ever at more than Two million dollars, And so when we did that story, some people asked, why so much? And so we looked into it.
0: And so what'd you find?
5: Well, the artist estimated some of the expenses for us from the transportation and the production Mm -hmm. of the logs to the site preparation at DIA to even the payroll for his team. And it's really interesting all that's involved in the process. Uh, You can see a really cool chart that kind of breaks it down on our website at cprnews.org. And I should say, too, that Merrill sent us a statement about this. He said, you know, it's not that simple. He says it's hard to quantify the cost of these big projects because to him, it's not simply a monetary exchange for a physical work of art. He says the value of public art goes beyond that and uh, it adds to our cultural vitality.
0: What surprised you about public art from the work you've done so far?
5: <laughs> I think it's how the role of art is defined so differently in many communities. Uh, some have more financial support in place than others. Take the Denver Metro. But, but then there's Colorado Springs. Uh, the, down there, there's a divide between people who want city arts funding and those who don't. So what we're seeing down there is, I guess, more of a, a grassroots movement. And it's fascinating because this state is seeing more growth. We know that it's major growth. And More people means more creatives looking for work. It means more people wanting these cultural experiences. But at the same time, I mean, there are other big needs in our state like education, like roads. And that brings up some big questions around how to pay for the arts, brings up questions about affordable housing for artists and what art offers to community. And all of this points us back to policy.
0: So what's next with your reporting,
5: Corey? Well, I'm really interested in what our audience has to say. I mean, I'm learning that public art can mean a lot of things. And I want to hear about what public art means to you. Maybe you think public money should go to the arts, or maybe you don't. Tell me why in an email. Send it to arts at CPR.org. Maybe there's a piece of art in your community that you're curious about. Take a photo and email me. Again, arts at CPR.org.
0: Now, I got to ask, what's up with that white sculpture we heard about earlier, the, the one in East End?
5: Ah, uh, Yes. Balloon Man Running by Sean O'Mealy. So here's the thing. That all started with this very basic question. What is that thing? So I went out to talk to people, and now we'll go from there. It turns out Sean O'Mealy recently got some national praise for another public art piece in Colorado Springs, and Nathan, you'll love this. He's a former toy inventor. So Mm. we're going to go visit his studio and then check out the scene down there. And uh, remember that RTD commissioned this sculpture for the Central Park Station in East Denver, so we'll also dive into how RTD funds its own public art program. Uh, And finally, don't forget, the Denver area will vote on SCFD in November. So I'll be doing more reporting on that and uh, that cultural tax and what it's all about uh, this fall. Thanks, Corey. Thank you, Nathan.
0: Corey Jones covers the arts for CPR News as we continue to focus on public art in Colorado. We'll check back in with him. In the meantime, we want to hear from you about our public art project. Tell us what public art means to you through our Public Insight Network at CPRNews.org. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We'll be right back. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Olympics start in Brazil in less than two weeks, and they could produce a brand new star from Colorado. Here's a little bit of the game that brought her to international attention just a few months ago. Across it is a goal! That's Pugh, her first international goal! Mallory Pugh grew up in Highlands Ranch outside Denver and started playing soccer when she was five. Last week, she became the second youngest player ever named to the U.S. women's Olympic soccer team. Mallory, welcome to the program. Thank you. The women's national soccer team may be the most prestigious American women's team of all time, and it's going for its fourth straight Olympic gold medal. That's a lot on the line. Is that a little scary for you?
2: Yeah, it's definitely a little scary. I know I'm super nervous, but really excited, too, and just going to the Olympics and being there with my teammates and kind of the relationships that we've bonded and have had over the past few months has been great. So um, that makes me even more excited.
0: So what are you expecting that that first game to be like?
2: Oh boy. I think the first game is just going to be something that I've always dreamed of. And just being in um, Brazil with that big of a soccer community there and just being, with my USA teammates and friends and family. It's just going to be um, a really special moment for me.
0: So is this like a, a different, let's say, than the first game of a normal season where you've got these these jitters? Is it going to be a little bit different than, let's say, a normal thing because this is the Olympics?
2: I think for me, I think I'm going to just look at it as it's just another game, but obviously it's not just another game. It's um, We are playing in the Olympics, but for me... I think just not really thinking too much of it, because then that's kind of when I start to freak out a little, Um, just kind of relaxing on the field and just enjoying it all.
0: You started playing soccer at five. When did the Olympics begin to seem like a real possibility?
2: I've always really dreamed of being in the Olympics and being with Team USA. But I think over just kind of the past few months, when I did get called into the team and I was playing. That's when I kind of started to think, oh, maybe this can be something that I can do. And I think just with the support of my teammates and my friends and family, um, even more confidence has came to me in trying to achieve that goal.
0: Women's soccer really came to the forefront in the late 1990s. And uh, there was a landmark game in 1999 when the team won the World Cup with stars like Mia Hamm and Brandy Chastain. You were one year old when that game was held. What's your sense of the tradition of women's soccer?
2: Every time you kind of hear about um, the national team in the U.S., everyone just kind of gets chilled because everyone on that team is just so powerful and so inspiring that there's a legacy that we as younger players need to kind of fulfill. So I know for me, I'm going to try the best I can just to kind of follow in their footsteps and try and be the best on and off the field player that I can.
0: And young female soccer players are going to be looking up to you too. How does that feel?
2: That feels amazing. I think um, one, I've always been dreaming of being in the Olympics and two, I've dreamed of inspiring other people. So just, Having that kind of quality is just going to really help me as a player and just kind of help um, U.S. soccer.
0: And, and there's a big dispute going on right now, and, and several of your teammates have filed a federal complaint saying they were paid far less than the men's national soccer team. There's even been talk of a strike before the Olympics. What's your take on all that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I know I will always support my teammates and whatever they do, but as of right now, I haven't really been in those types of conversations because I still am an amateur, and I plan to go to college in January, and I'm really excited for that,
0: too. Yeah, and amateurs aren't paid, of course, unlike professional players. Are you worried about the infrastructure or conditions in Brazil not being ready for, for, for the Olympians and, and maybe that concern of Zika that, that we've heard so much of in the news?
2: No, not really. I think um, really I've just been focused on trying to make this Olympic team and over the past few months on school and soccer. So I'm not too worried about it. And we've had conversations with the CDC and other health organizations and they've really um, educated us on kind of what they've been doing down there. So, yeah, I'm pretty confident in going down there.
0: And I think a lot of us uh, watching the Olympics on TV have imagined ourselves walking into the opening ceremonies, waving at that huge cheering crowd with that American uniform on. But you're not going to be able to go to that because the team starts its matches two days earlier and 200 miles away. Are you disappointed? Yeah. about
2: that? I'm super disappointed about it. But I know that um, we have one goal on our mind, and that's to win a gold medal. So um, I think just kind of focusing on that. And um, I know we're going to be super excited just to kind of be there. And even though if it's we're going to be watching it on TV,
0: you're not making the opening ceremonies. But but uh, what are you hoping for when you walk into the closing ceremonies?
2: When we walk in the closing ceremonies, I'm definitely hoping for the gold medal with me, and just kind of wrapping it all up and just taking it all in because um, you never know when this experience can come around again.
0: Have you had dreams of being on the podium uh, when the Star-Spangled Banner is played and, and the flag is risen above you with, with that gold medal? Have you had that dream? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> is, it, is it tough to, uh, to kind of keep that out of your head and really focus on the game? I mean, this is such a huge event for you.
2: It, it is hard, but I think... For us as a team, we just focus one game at a time and try and conquer that.
0: The women's team was just named last week. What will you be doing between now and the Olympics?
2: I'll probably just be spending time with my family and friends. And then we will have our um, our last send-off game on the 22nd of July so against Costa Rica. So just be with the team and just kind of get ready for Rio and try and win that gold medal.
0: So, when you're not being an Olympic soccer player, what do you do to relax?
2: I usually just kind of hang out with my friends and family and just spend time outdoors and just enjoy moments with them because I know all my friends are going to be going off to college soon. So, I'm really going to see them over the next few months. So, just kind of cherishing times like that.
0: And what about bonding with your teammates? They're a lot older than you are. Is there kind of a disconnect there?
2: I don't think so. I think um, most of my teammates on this team are very young and spirited because in this environment, I think you just kind of have to have that. You just kind of have to relax and just kind of have your child's side out. So all the relationships that I formed are just, they're obviously different than my friends at home, but they've been great.
0: Are they playing Pokemon Go like the rest of the country?
2: <laughs> Actually... I haven't even heard of the game until um, recently, but hopefully when I get back um, with the team in Kansas City, hopefully some of them will be playing it because I kind of like the game too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Mallory, best of luck and uh, thanks for being here. Of course. Thank you. Mallory Pugh is a forward on the U.S. Women's Olympic soccer team. The team's first game is August 3rd. The Olympic opening ceremonies in Rio are August 5th. Finally today, the Denver band Devotchka recently collaborated with the Colorado Symphony at Red Rocks Amphitheater for the 5th year in a row. Before the show, they came by the CPR Performance Studio to play a few tracks, including The Clockwise Witness. Denver Band Devochka, with members of the Colorado Symphony performing The Clockwise Witness. That's our show for today. My audio engineer is Michael Hughes. My director is Stephanie Wolf. Producers Anthony Cotton and Michelle P. Fulcher helped with the show today. Executive editor is Ryan Warner. Managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. Of course, follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. Colorado Matters is also a podcast. You can subscribe by clicking Colorado Matters at the top of CPRnews.org. Then subscribe to podcast in the audio player. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.